Hi, my name is No Winter. Today's scripture comes from Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred uh, sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts, on, uh, puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous per persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp? sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Thanks, Noah. We've been in this study that we've called the lost and found as a way to begin the new year. And it's basically saying, you know, what are those things in our heart that if they get addressed there, it's going to affect everything else in our lives. And in these parables, Jesus tells three, this whole chapter is made up of three parables that Jesus tells. In each case, there is the pursuit of someone. That's why it lost and found. So as we begin today, it's like, well, do you know God is pursuing you? Do you know that he's interested in you? Uh, one of my favorite writers growing up, and we, Sandy and I have read a big part of his works to our children when they were young, as C.S. Lewis, you'll see a picture of him as a young man. He grew up not knowing God, far from God, not in church, not really even acknowledging God. Actually, as a young man, he went so far as to say this. He said, I think I believe in no religion. There's absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. All religions, i.e. all mythologies, are merely man's own invention. Now, the interesting thing about Lewis was he was born with a physical defect. His thumbs did not have the two joints like ours do, making it impossible for him to really grasp or hold on to things very well. He couldn't do physical things well. He certainly couldn't do sports. And so he fell into reading and books and academia and all those things. And in reading and trying to understand our world, he kept coming across these pointers to this reality of who God is. For example, a few years after he said he didn't believe in any religion, he said he, he read a book by a man named John Bunyan and he said, I am finding still more and more the element of truth in the old beliefs that I feel I cannot dismiss. There must be something in it. Only what? And it led him to further reading and, and more investigation until one day, about a year later, he said, I felt as if I were a man of snow at long last beginning to melt. And still, a little more than another year later, he talks about this feeling. He said, I was feeling 
the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. He's like, look, I wasn't seeking God. I wasn't interested in him. I didn't, I didn't even want to have to, anything to do with religion or any of that. But God is the one who came after me. And what you begin to realize as you like study the Bible, as you look at Scripture, time after time, like Abraham, God pursues him. David, God comes and calls him. He's the least in his family. And he is the one who is always pursuing people. You could call it this rescuing nature of God. And, then, and by the way, in C.S. Lewis's life, it was that relationship with God that gave meaning to everything else, that pushed him to become a writer, to write the amazing stories that many of us have enjoyed. Now, this section in Scripture has the purpose of pushing us to remember and to know, like, who God is, that God is the pursuer of human beings, reminding us of God's steadfast and seeking love. And the goal is, as we begin the year, to entrench and sort of build our identities on this foundation of how God sees us and his love for us in his pursuit of us. Would you pray together with me this morning as we get started? Lord, we're given in our culture this incredible responsibility. We have to make a story for ourselves. Make a life, create an identity, give ourselves a reputation, be able to give meaning and purpose to the fact that we were born and that, and that we're here. But Lord, we find so much difficulty doing that. Because Father, where do we start? Who are we and, and what are your purposes for us? And so I pray, Lord, as we start this year, we'd be able to begin in the awareness of who we are known by you, how you see us, that we might have a life unfolding from that. And so, Father, lead us, teach us these ancient truths. They're also truths for us now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, Dave, last week, talked about the first parable. We'll look at it briefly today about the shepherd and the sheep. And one of the things we need to know about this is this teaching, this metaphor of God as shepherd, people as sheep, predates Jesus by a very long time. For example, one of the prophets of God, Ezekiel, delivered these words over 500 years before Jesus was born. This is what he said. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. So as Jesus uses this parable of the, the shepherd searching out the sheep, he is connecting with Stories that the people of God have heard for hundreds of years. They know these stories like you know the, the look of the back of your own hand. And so even when Jesus, later in his ministry, he says, I am the good shepherd, 
right? He is saying, by the way, you know, God said that he would come and shepherd his own people because the people were scattered and they were lost. And he said he would appear, I'm the good shepherd, I've showed up. You hear what he's saying? I am God here to shepherd and pursue my lost sheep. And by the way, Jesus explained his mission very simply. He said, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. Now, when I hear that, I think, wow, I don't think any of us like to think about ourselves as being lost. But don't we often feel that way? You know, as I was thinking about this, I think that at least two ways we experience this sense of lostness. First, I think there's on the personal side. I mean, how often do we get to a place in our lives where you're like, okay, I think I've, I've done this before. I, I, I'm feeling stuck where I am right now, going nowhere, wondering, well, what is life meant to, to be for me? Sure, I know it's another year, okay, but, but who cares? I find myself really just trying to get through another day. And so to think that there could be any real meaning and purpose in any significant way, is just, I feel lost. And so literally, that's what people re- report. They feel listless and lost. Maybe it's even a deep sadness of the soul. But I think there's also a corporate lostness. As humanity, we know this. There's a feeling of being cut off. I mean, I hear no one talking about there being any purpose to history or any sense of awareness that we are made in the image of God or in his likeness, that there's any connection with something or anything that will last. We have forgotten that we have a purpose here in the world. We've been cut off from this glorious purpose. And we, we no longer know that we are meant to enjoy this life that God has given us as a gift and to come to know him and enjoy him. I remember years ago um, when this book is called Purpose Driven Life. I think it came out in the 90s, was written by Rick Warren, in which he was like trying to dial down into explaining what our purpose is. And he cites early on in the book that a a survey was sent out to philosophy professors in universities all across the country. You know, most, a lot of people don't return those surveys, but some people do. And in the survey, one of the questions is, what is the purpose of life? He wanted to know, the researcher, what do they tell their students as they're teaching philosophy? Life is all about, and invariably those returned responses, I don't know. I don't know. One of them even wrote in there, if you find out, I want you to contact me and tell me what it is. And this is where we live. You would say, really? We don't know why we're here and and what our purpose is? And this is what we've been taught. Our story just doesn't have a meaning, a purpose. It doesn't have a destination. And the reality is it's incoherent without God. This is what we've been nurtured in. Here's Bertrand Russell, atheist philosopher from about 100 years ago. I find that we've been sort of nurtured in this. He said about as human beings, he said, his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental co-locations of atoms. All the labors of the ages All the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. 
only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. That's the stuff that we're being fed. This doesn't mean anything. It's not going anywhere. It doesn't have any significance. It's all going to be burned up. There's going to be nothing left in the end. In billions of years, when this universe collapses, all of it will be gone. There'll be no memory of this. And we have been eating this for so long. We are nauseous. We're dizzy, wondering, what is this about? Why am I here? We've been living in what we've been told is a bad story. And we're afraid this is all that there is. And so you hear this and you say, okay, how, how are we going to know that there's anything more? That this isn't our story? And you're beginning to see why Jesus came into our world. Why he pursued us. And this is the story of these parables. And it's one I want to look at with you today. The, the security, the reality of being pursued by God. And if you're, if you're an outliner or a note taker, I want to do it just under four words. Extent, intensity, repentance, and then rejoicing. Now last week we began looking at this Luke 15 from the life of Jesus. And we also learned, Dave told us, that as Jesus' ministry progressed, there were two main groups of people that began following him. First, there were the outcasts. They're called tax collectors. Often they're just called sinners, like with quote marks. These are people that have gone beyond the pale in the ideas or the perspective of the Jewish establishment. People like prostitutes, but also people with illnesses that never got better. Or um, people who, um, who, who just did not have the, the kind of life, the religious life, that the religious leaders thought they should have. And by the way, these people flocked to Jesus. They wanted to be around him. Because he shared with them a love from God they had never heard and never known. They had told was not for them. And Jesus began to share with them, and they, they were just so drawn to him. Here, here is the heart of God toward them, but alongside them were the religious leaders. These were Pharisees and teachers of the law, and they were there present to hear Jesus so that they could trap Jesus. They wanted to bring him down. They see the popularity of Jesus growing and crowds being attracted to him, and, and they're jealous. They want the crowds for themselves. They fear Jesus' success, and here... They're muttering under their breath with contempt for Jesus. And so Jesus doesn't try to answer them. He tells them three stories, hoping these stories will get past their defenses and help them to actually see the heart of God, who God is, and, and why he is there. Now, the first of these parables is the parable about one lost sheep. Out of a flock of 100, 99 are safe, one is lost. And in that parable, Jesus asked this question. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now, do you know the answer to that question the crowd would give? The crowd would say, absolutely not. There's no way you're going to do that. If that shepherd leaves 99 in the open country where they're vulnerable just to pursue one lost sheep, he's not going to have a flock. This is the end, right? 
He did, so what is Jesus saying? Why would Jesus tell a story none of them could possibly believe? And the reason is this. For God, there are no acceptable losses. God is not willing for even one person to be lost. Now think of the comfort that that would give you if you were a sheep. It doesn't matter how far you've wandered away, how far you've run, how much you've rebelled, what has happened. You know your shepherd is such that wherever you are, he is going to hunt you down. He is going to bring you home. By the way, you may choose to run off. You may doubt or curse God. But the shepherd will seek you still. And he finds that sheep and puts it on his shoulders and he brings it home. And so Jesus, he so much wants them to see the heart of God. He, he literally extends that parable. It begins in the beginning, it says he tells one parable. And this is a part of it. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Well, it's like... Whoa, why is, he, why is he doing that? We know the shepherd sheep story. That's all in the Old Testament. God had been talking about that for a long time. But there are no coin stories. He's not connecting to any ancient teaching here. Why does Jesus tell this story? Let me tell you why. Women never factor in the stories of the rabbis. During the time of Jesus, women had been pushed to the margin of life. They have no official status. They could not give testimony in court. They could not even speak to a man in public if that man was not her husband. There were indeed outstanding women in the Old Testament, like Miriam, the sister of Moses, and, and Deborah, one of the judges of Israel, and, and Esther, and the Proverbs 31 woman from the last chapter of Proverbs, a, a, dis, a woman of distinctive character. But by the time of Jesus, women had been demoted. One of the most prominent rabbis of the time, Ben Sirach, said that, by the way, men, he said, you must keep track of all those things that you let your wife have her hands on because she's not to be trusted. Keep an accounting system, he said. No property, he said, should ever be deeded to a woman. He literally said having a daughter was a total loss and a constant potential source of shame. You should pray God does not give you daughters. And so soon... The records of heroes only included the men. And you can see that in all the teaching of the other rabbis. He went as far as to say this. He said, do not sit down with women, for moth comes out of clothes, and a woman's spites comes out of a woman. A man's spite is preferable to a woman's kindness. Women give rise to shame and reproach. I wish I was making this stuff up. So why does Jesus tell us about a woman searching for a coin? There are women present, and he wants them to know this is for them too. You see, he's continually showing us the extent of God's love, the searching love of God. He's doing what no rabbi would do. And as you walk through the Gospel of Luke, you'll say, oh, he tells a story that appeals to men, then he tells a story that appeals to women. He tells a story about a man, then he tells a story about a woman. And what is Jesus doing? He's revealing the heart of God 
Women are made in the image and likeness of God, just as men are equal in dignity and to be respected. And he not only uses the perspective of a woman, he makes the woman the searcher in this story. He uses the story of the woman to point to the character of our loving God. No rabbi would do this, but Jesus, our rabbi, your rabbi, wants to show the reach of God's love, where it extends. You see, I think we're always, in every culture, we draw a circle that keeps some people out. Like they cannot be in the rest of community or they're not going to be accepted. And God is always inviting them in, always going to them, searching them. I thought about this year as I was reading about, I don't know if you do that, I do a lot of reading. I was reading the news from 2023. And three super prominent but completely unlikely women came to faith in Jesus last year. The first one you'll see up here is, is a Dutch activist. Her name is Ayan Hershey Ali. She was first a part of Islam. She forsook Islam and became a spokesman for the New Atheist Movement. And as she began to, to study the faiths of the world, she was like, the only way we have hope as a people is if we start following Jesus. And next after her is this woman you may recognize, Catherine von Drakenberg. Her name is Kat, Kat von D. She's a TV personality. She's been in one of those shows made famous about tattoos and stuff like that. She was heavily involved in the occult and witchcraft, a leader in this movement. And yet the picture of her is being baptized. She was baptized in October. And then... To get on sort of the other side of things academically, here's Molly Worthen. She is taught in prestigious universities all around the country. She's a noted historian, and she was a heavy critic of Christians and Christianity. She came to faith. She's come to follow Jesus, and she's been public about it. And it's like, why did these three come to faith? You see, they met Jesus, and they discover how Jesus changes everything in our world by the way that he shows the love of God for people, and especially in the way that he treats women, the way that he cares for them. And here is the heart of God. Now, you may feel like an outsider. You're here and like, okay, I can't wait until this is over. I don't leave. But God would always come in pursuit of you. You may think in the grand scheme of things, I don't matter. Jesus is telling you that you do. And he is working to include you in his story. And so I think first this shapes the way we see ourselves. Do you feel like perhaps you're less important to God because you don't have a position of stature? Or you feel like you're unnoticed and recognized by other people? Maybe, or, or maybe because of your background or your abilities or your past. Or it could be nationality, right, or achievement. You need to know God is pursuing you. God loves you. But then I find how God uses this to change the way I see other people. Are there people you have given up on? People like the Pharisees had no love for but only contempt. You see, Jesus went in search of them because the, the love of God is for them as well. And so he invites all of us to learn his way of love. Now in the parable, this is what we read. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Now, we need to stay with Jesus here because he's teaching us so much more. Look at how dil diligently 
This woman searches for the coin. I don't know about you, but if I drop a coin, I just let it roll. Most of the time, I, a lot of times, I don't even pick it up. If it's a penny or a nickel or, I mean, how much are all of us like that? So why is this woman, why is she making this desperate search, cleaning up everything on the floor of her house to find it? Why would she do this? Jesus is talking about another type of coin. You see, a woman in that age would wear a necklace, and on there would be a number of coins, sort of like this one in the picture. Do we have that picture? There it is. And it literally would be her bank account. That's how precious it was to her. Like, uh, oftentimes she would have nothing beyond that. And in this case, one of those coins has fallen off in the house. You see, this is not only a story that women could relate to because they wore such necklaces. It is more than that. It's a picture of the intensity of the love of God. His desire is to show what is driving this search. As the coin is precious to the woman, so people are precious to God. Jesus is showing us the passion of God, the extent of his love, and the intensity of it. Now, by the way, this story goes all the way across the breadth of Scripture. It's about how God loves people. Just how much God has entangled himself into human beings and their lives. You know, that's actually a really good definition of love. It's like, well, what is love? Love, as one of the American theologians, Jonathan Edwards says, is including you, uh, that other person's well-being in your own. In other words, if they're not doing well, you won't be well. And this is what we see God doing. Him entangling himself deeply into the future that we have as human beings. This is what love is. Now, I thought of this a little over a week ago when we were visiting with our son and daughter-in-law and their new baby in Portland, Oregon. I had to show you guys this. Please forgive me, okay? Give me a little grace here. That is Abe, okay? And it was really cool because I was sitting with his mom. Her name is Cassidy. And she was like, I was just taken away. She said, as soon as I had this baby in my arms, I, I discovered I had this love for him that was just incredible. How did I have this so quickly? Where did this come from? How, how could this be? And you begin to learn about how this works, and you begin to see, aha, the love of God is like that. You see, our problem is we talk about salvation as a transaction, that a debt has to be settled, a sin has to be covered. That stuff is all true. But that is the tip of an iceberg that reveals that this, this isn't a mercenary affair for God. He's not doing it because some score has to be settled. Listen to how Scripture explains it. There's so many places like this. It says, is not Ephraim my dear son, that's a part of Israel, in whom I delight? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him. You hear the heart of God? It's not just a, a thing that has to be solved. It's like I, I yearn for my people. I have affection for them. I am tied up with them. Listen to Isaiah 65. He said, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people. Can you see God? He's like, hey, I'm over, I'm over here, you guys. I've always loved you. I, here I am. Will you walk with me? 
It's the yearning heart of God. You see, we turn God into a force and an equation, but God is personal. His love for you is intense and passionate. And I know some people will say, oh, that's anthropomorphism. It's, it's using things about human beings to talk about God. But these are the words God has chosen to use to explain his own heart to each of us. And then let me tell you what happened. I'm in Portland, Oregon, and I get this little boy in my arms. And like, oh, here he is, right? And it's like, first, I enjoyed this not just because I will not be his diaper changer in chief or the one who will wake up with him in the middle of the night, but there's a recognition. This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. He, he belongs to me. We belong to each other. My love. And what I realized was this, and he has a huge place in my heart already, as tiny as he is. My love for him is nothing in comparison to the intense love that God has for me and for you. Here's the 17th century pastor, John Owen. He said, there is not the meanest, the weakest, the poorest believer on earth, but Christ prizes him more than all the world. That's you. This is the heart of Jesus toward you. And this is how he sees you every day. This is the perspective he has of you. Now let me tell you what happens. The woman finds her precious coin. She sweeps the house. She refuses to give up. And this is what we're told. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Did you get that last phrase? It's still up there. One sinner who repents. Here is that third word, repentance, right? There's first extent, an intensity, and there's repentance. Now, this is religious language we know. This is describing when a person makes an about face in their life. That's repentance. The word is for a change of mind. A change of mind happens in a person that is so great that everything else in their life begins to change as well. Everything about them. It's to make amends. It's to be ready to make things right. And if we haven't caught this yet, I mean we should, this is the second time Jesus says it. Here's the end of that little parable before. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. But I hear that. I'm like, whoa, 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 hold, hold on a minute here. In neither of the parables is there the slightest sign of repentance. The sheep doesn't do anything to bring himself home. He does nothing to rescue himself. And well, the, the coin is just a coin. It can't do anything. How could Jesus be using these parables to teach us about repentance? But that's clearly what he's doing. He's repeating it, right? That's why he repeats this teaching. Well, let me tell you why. You see, among the Jewish people, as it often is with religious people, there were very detailed ways you could get back into God's graces if you wanted to. Maybe you've heard of doing penance, right? You do all these, you've done something wrong, you do all this stuff that's good, and boom, it takes you right back, supposedly, back good with God. Or if you haven't heard about that, you were at least told by a parent, you need to be sorry. Actually, it would be good if you're very sorry. But how sorry does a person need to be? 
And how much penance does a person need to to do? You see, both of these things focus on our will, on on what we do to make it work, to change course, to lead a different life. And and by the way, that's what we do at New Year. I have plans. I'm going to do better this year. God, I promise I won't do it like I did it last year. You see, we want to do our best to make things right with God. And Jesus doesn't say, the sheep does nothing, the coin does nothing. We're, you know, we tell ourselves we can get our lives together. And Jesus is not telling them to do a single thing. No, here repentance really sort of looks like nothing more than being willing to be found. Being willing to be found, that's it. You see, God is the one seeking you. He's doing all the work. He finds you. And what is required is surrender. I think we hate this. I think we love people who are like preach or teach to our will. You can do it this year. You're going to make that thing happen. You're going you're to pull it together. We don't like this. Of course, we, we don't cause ourselves to be found, Jesus says. It's all the work of God loving us and coming to us and that's the reality. And so instead of saying, hey, I can do it, I can do it, it's like this. Pastor John Ortberg puts it like this. It's coming to God and saying three things. I can't. He can. I think I'll let him. I can't. He can. I think I'll let him. But will you? In other words, will you depend on him? Are you willing to be found? Or do you expect to pull off your own self-salvation? You wonder, well, how can Jesus do this? How can he forgive people who have not made things right? The cross is at the center of Jesus' mission to accomplish all of those things we could never bring about. And by the way, it wasn't a mistake. It is the cost of his rescue mission. Everything in our lives that keeps us from God was nailed to the cross so that he could come and simply bring us home. Do you know that Jesus actually called out to the Father to be rescued? He called out, come and get me. And God did not respond. God was silent. And he was silent when his own son called out to him so that Jesus might be able to rescue you. So that you could be brought home. This is the way it's said in the New Testament, the Apostle John. This is love, not that we love God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So we could be brought from the far country in the sold shoulders of Jesus. We could become members of the family of God. You know, this isn't any of our doing. It's all the doing of Jesus who has already showed that he loves you and he does not want you, anyone, to be lost. You see, I think repentance comes after the rescue has already begun. It's then we're like, wow, God has loved me. And my heart begins to change. Things, things change in my life. The love of Jesus changes us. I can't change myself. And that leads to the last word, and the word is rejoicing. Here is the other side of the grief of God and our lostness that we hear in the prophets and elsewhere. It is this joy when we are found. Jesus repeats this. And you say, well, why does he talk about this? Well, this is the, the lover being brought to the, backed by to the beloved. This is the child being reunited with his father. This is the, the creature now being brought back to, to his or her creator, knowing this reunion that takes place. This is the celebration. And by the way, this is the story of our world. It's how Jesus has come to bring this about. Writer Ken Davis You'll see a picture of him and his wife, Diane. I don't know if Diane isn't in that picture, but there he is with his grandchildren. 
He lives out west, so he loves this, you know, being out in the wilderness and, and going into the mountains. So a few years ago, he took three of his grandchild, granddaughters, they were old enough, and he and his wife took them on a camping trip in the high country of Colorado. They love camping. And their first day, they're on ATVs, riding with them. They're doing all kinds of fun stuff, exploring and adventuring. It was the best. On day two, the girls woke up early and woke him up and said, hey, we need to start a fire. We need to cook breakfast, so on. So we took the girls out away from the camp, and he is just finding sticks and stuff like that. At one point, he turned to four-year-old Jaden is her name. You'll see a picture of the two of them together. And said to Jaden, look, carry this back to your grandmother. Wake her up. Because we need to get started with the fire. And, um, and so she took off. And that was the last place that Ken would see her. When he got back to the camp, there was no sign of her. There was panic. They exploded from the campsite in every direction, yelling her name, top of their voice, I mean, as loud as you possibly could. Ken ran up and down every path on that mountain screaming. His wife jumped on one of the ATVs and went up every single trail in every direction of the mountain, yelling and yelling, yelling. And here's Ken. He said, after about two and a half hours, I began to steal myself for the worst. Soon a forest ranger came by and they called in volunteers to join in the search because the mountain could be such a dangerous place for a young child. And then he got a cell phone and he went down the mountain enough where he could get cell coverage to call the parents of little Jaden. And I remember reading that and just thinking, I cannot have, imagine having to make a phone call like that. How are you going to tell the parents that their little four-year-old is gone? Above the camp, there was an area with deep, muddy pools, and Ken had gone up that way in search for her, and he fell into one of the pools. It was filled with water and mud and deep, and he just found himself praying that she had not fallen into one of those holes herself. And it was there trembling he came to the end of himself. This is what he said, Dear God, I have nothing left. You have everything, Lord. I cherish this girl more than anything. If need be, take my life. Take me but please bring this baby back. And when I read that, I thought, Jesus had to be saying something like that about you. Lord, she means more to me than, than you can imagine. And, and, and take my life if it's necessary. But she needs to be saved. And take that man, Lord. Rescue him. He needs to be saved. His, his voice gave out. His strength was gone in tears and mud and terror and love. The searchers didn't find Jaden that day. It was a young couple out on a hike along an old mining road that came across her. And when they found her, Jaden came up. It was a couple who came up to the woman, and Jaden said this, my grandpa is lost. And it was so true. It was so true. He was so lost. He stayed in that muddy water for a long time. And prayers and tears and mud, they all mingled together. And I think about that and I think, you know, if we could just for a moment grasp just the extent of the love that God has for us, that Jesus would come and be in the mud and be willing to lay down his life so that, that you could be recovered, you could enjoy fellowship with God. And we would tell you what happened. 
She was, when Ken heard she was found, he rushed to her. You'll see their reunion. He bends down. He's so delighted. He's overwhelmed with the joy she's alive. And I think if we can grasp this joy, see, Jesus is trying to help us get this. How would we begin then to live? What would our lives look like? We would know the heart of God toward us. And so, you know, what if the new year started with not promising that I'll do better, I'll make it happen, a self-salvation plan, we stopped making promises to God at all, and we just rested in that. If we just said, you know what, I, I can't. He can. I think, I think I'll let him. I think I'll let him. Would you pray together with me? Father, we're living in an amazing story. And it's like we've been bewitched, Lord. We've been told that the stuff we do doesn't matter, and our world really isn't going anywhere except toward destruction. And Jesus comes to save us because, Lord, we are oh so lost. And, Father, thank you that in Jesus you have chased us down. You have shown the extent of your love. Lord, don't let us forget. Let this be the foundation upon which our lives are built and lived. And, Lord, we, we think that if we've fallen down, we run away. We made huge mistakes. Somehow your love changes then. But we know that Jesus, that Jesus came and you love us just because you love us. Because that's who you are. And so I pray, Lord, even as we worship together, um, we be willing to be found by you. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.